Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, you write fiction. I do. I do occasionally commit acts of fiction. Right. And as a fiction writer, I'm sure you have heard this saying, though I can't remember where I heard it. If you want to make a character interesting, what should you do? You give them a secret. Ah, some some broad advice because not all secrets are created equally. Uh, they, they, you could give a character a, a secret identity. You could give them a, a secret past, a secret mission, um, a secret mark upon their body. Uh, <laughs> like I, I always think back to um, a secret pet. Yeah, a se- well, secret pet. I don't know. Has has there been a? I guess you could have like an illegal pet. Right. But I always think back to uh, raising Arizona and the. Um, the, the bounty hunter character played by um, uh, Tex Cobb. Yeah. And uh, and he has the secret, uh, what like Woody Woodpecker uh, tattoo on his body that's revealed in one of the scenes. And there's this moment between. Which, which the protagonist also has. Yeah, the protagonist has it as well. And so it's the this. The protagonist, Nicholas Cage, <laughs> also has a Woody Woodpecker tattoo. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a lovely moment in the film because uh, suddenly these two characters uh, share a secret or a secret has been exposed and, uh, and, and there's not much made of it in the film. There's just this, this, this one pregnant moment where, where we just consider the ab- absurdity and st- strange depth of, uh, of what has happened. I would say in general, it's kind of hard to have a good story without a secret. I mean, try, try to think, I'm sure you can come up with a few, but mm-hmm. it, it, Secret secrets are always there in fiction because good fiction is the act of discovery. And if you want to make a discovery tantalizing, you should know that there is something to be discovered, but not know what it is. Yeah, I mean, it instantly creates uh, creates drama, tension. There's stuff that the character has to hold back. The character may end up then having to lie about things. Uh, yeah, it, it, it opens up uh, possibilities there. And conflict and inner conflict, I should add, because that's another huge aspect of, of secrets. So many of our, our more weighty secrets in life and certainly in fiction are secrets that are tied to identity. So you end up with a, with a, a protagonist or an antagonist who is, um, who, whose whole, you know, personality and identity is sort of, uh, uh spun around this, uh, often dark secret about who they really are. Right. The tension in their character is trying to keep all that bottled inside. Yeah. Now, of course, uh, you know, secrets have been a part of our stories for a very long time. Secrets factor into many myths and folk tales. So you have like the secret names of demons come up, right? Rumpelstiltskin. Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah. If you know, if you know an entity's name, then you have some power over it. Uh, you have secret betrayals, secret histories, but uh, I've always found one particular tale of secret and secret keeping particularly compelling, and that's the Japanese folk tale of uh, Yuki Ona, uh, the woman in the snow. Okay, hit me with it. All right, so this is the, these this is the basic uh, telling of the tale. So a young man ventures out into the woods with other woodcutters. And then they're caught in a terrible snowstorm and a terrifying figure finds them in the cold. And then one by one, she drains the life from the woodcutters. But then when she comes to the young man, she spares him and she tells him that she will let him live. But there's one provision. He must never tell a single living soul what has happened here. He has to keep this secret his entire life. And if he tells anyone, she'll come for him and take his life. So it's like the opposite of natural born killers or, uh, or tell them the North remembers or something like that. Right. It's, uh, it's saying like, no, don't tell this story. 
You've right. got to keep it inside. Even though it's, I mean, it's, it's the most interesting thing that's ever happened to you, young woodcutter, but, uh, but you must never tell anyone. It's going to define who you are. It's going to change the course of your life, but you have to keep it inside. And so the, the young man survives the storm. He ventures back to the village and life moves on. He keeps the secret. He meets a beautiful woman and they marry. Uh, he and his wife have children. They settle into a happy and normal life. But the whole time, he has this secret tugging at him. He feels its weight, its chill. And, and then finally, one night, uh, after the children are asleep, he unburdens himself to his wife. He tells her of this deadly encounter, this deadly spirit in the woods on that uh, that day so long ago. So he feels a lot better then, right? Well, maybe for, uh, I, yeah, I think he does for a few seconds there. But after he unburdens himself, his wife curses him for breaking his word and telling the secret, and then she reveals her true form, for she is the woman in the snow and has lived these many years as his wife and mother to his children. So she had a secret too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, their whole, they're both wrapped up, their fates are both wrapped up in this this one potent secret. And, you know, and, and obviously there are, um, you know, less defined magical qualities here. The idea that a, you know, a secret um, actually has magical power to it. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens next varies with the telling uh, and the various versions make us ponder, you know, what the weight of a secret is, what the weight of a, a solemn vow is, because that's the other aspect here is he vowed not to tell. And uh, in some cases, in some tellings of this, she melts away into ice water. In others, she spares him yet again, but promises to come for him and show no mercy if he's not a kind father to their children. And then she, you know, walks off into the snow. But either way, the husband is heartbroken. The children are going to wake up the next morning and find their mother gone. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's heavy stuff no matter how you shake it. Well, this plays on our deepest fears and the thing that motivates most secret keeping. Now, there are a lot of different kinds of secrets you could keep. You could be a spy and keep secrets in your line of work, or mm-hmm. you could be keeping a very a, a temporary benign secret like planning a surprise party. But most of the secrets that come to mind when you think about secrecy are things you don't want other people to know about you. And that's that's the kind of thing that can be especially damaging in a relationship, right? Like if there's something that you don't want your life partner to mm-hmm. know about you, that's a fundamental flaw in the most important relationship in your life. Right. I mean, it's some of the literature we're looking at for this episode, uh, they got into this a little bit. They're like I'm, uh, about there being a balance, too, right? Do you, how, because you end up in a situation where you don't want to share all your secrets and then your beloved turns into a snow monster and kills you. Right. Like, I mean, that's kind of one reading on the, the tale of uh, Yuki Ona is that he was a little too open with his secrets. He should not have told that secret. That's one yeah. he should have kept. The moral of the story is that he should not have been honest. Yeah. But then there there are some versions of that tale where where she's completely forgiving because because it was not a breaking of the vow to share that with his wife. So, huh. yeah. Interesting. And then, and then, of course, there's there's one version where she right, outright kills him. Uh, and that's uh, a 1990s uh, retelling in Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. I like that the chassis of this story can be repurposed to suit almost any moral you want people to take away. So, like, yeah. this story could be about how you should not keep secrets or it could be about how you should keep secrets. Yeah, and yeah, there's uh, that's one of the things that I think is so attractive about it. There's there's an ambiguity a to the magic, like what's the what are the what's the actual what are the actual magical mechanics of what's going on here, and then uh, and then yeah, like was the guy in the right? Because you have a 
you have a, a guy who tells his secret for uh, reveals his secret for a seemingly very noble reason like he it's weighing him down it's it's causing him pain and it's something that's between him and the most important person in his life also though the fact of the secret is not an admission of personal wrongdoing on his part or right. something that that he should be ashamed of it's just about a thing that happened to him that he can't talk about right and i and i can't i have to assume it's the kind of thing that like shapes you that's the, that's the kind of thing that changes a person right uh watching a snow spirit uh murder people before you uh so it you know it's 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 sad it's uh it's 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 depressing to think that you would have a character that would be that af- affected by something. Like, really, it's a traumatic event, and and he can never talk about it. And I think that's something that a lot, of, I mean, a lot of people can relate to that. A lot of people have experienced traumas that they either do not feel they can talk about, or they, or they, you know, they can talk about it very rarely, or they spoke of it once, uh, you know, to you know an appropriate uh, you know authority, and then they can't share it again. Right. Now, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, that's the one where a cat jumps down a guy's throat. Yes, that's the... That's what's Is that of, also a Japanese legend? No, that's a Stephen King story. <laughs> but um, the, let's see, I, I, I'm not going to remember all these, the tales that are retold in that one, but I know one is a, one is a retelling of The Mummy. Uh, that I've, I've referred to a few times because that's one of the few terrifying mummy tales, in my opinion. Yeah, it's got Christian Slater in it, right? Right. And the mummy goes around, uh, pulling people's brains out with a coat hanger. So it's, it's nice. actually terrifying for a little bit. Uh, but this one in particular, um, it's a retelling of, uh, of, of the snow woman, the woman in the snow, except you have it set in New York City with gargoyles. Uh, the monster is a gargoyle instead of a snow spirit. And then you have, uh, James Remar playing the husband and Radon Chong playing the wife. And it's, it's actually really good. It's, uh, it was written by, uh, the late novelist and screenwriter Michael McDowell. Hmm. Now, another and far more literal telling of this, uh, this tale is, uh, Masaki Kobayashi's 1965 film Kaiden, which features this tale among other Japanese, traditional Japanese ghost stories. And it's extremely beautiful. It's really like a, really there's a psychedelic vision to this film. Uh, it's, it's available on uh, Criterion Collection. This is one of those I've been meaning to watch for years and haven't gotten around to. I've got a, a good friend of mine, uh, from Tennessee really loves this one. Oh yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It's hypnotic. Um, this one, I think I've actually referred to another story that's featured in this where you have the um, uh, the reflection of a samurai's ghost in a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in this one, what happens when he reveals the secret? Uh, this one has the more traditional version where she um, she spares him but makes him promise to be a good father to the children. Oh, yeah. well, that's sweet. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's sweet. But again, it's, it's still heartbroken. So if it's not obvious by now, we are going to be talking about secrets today, and we're going to try to get into some of the science of secrets, talk about the psychological research that exists on secrecy, the, the practice of keeping secrets, and the, the effects of secrecy. Uh, but I was trying to think about the concept of secrecy because it first it seemed like a very straightforward idea, mm-hmm. right? A secret is just uh, what standard definition is something kept from knowledge or view, right? Yeah, like uh, the I keep thinking of it in in terms of my my son. Like, how did we introduce the concept of a secret to him? And mm-hmm. it's in the form of giving gifts, uh, Christmas or birthdays, right? Because it comes down to what's in this box for your mother. You can't tell her it's a secret. Like it's a very right. literal scenario. There is an unseen quantity in this box. You know what it is, and you can't say what it is you know, for the sake of fun. 
<laughs> and that that's the nice version, right? But mm-hmm. so, yeah, something kept from knowledge or view. OK, that seems fairly straightforward. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought that's not really a, a very accurate version of how we use the word secret. It doesn't match the usage uh, because here's an example. If I live alone and I haven't had anybody over to my apartment yet and I have a green chair that I've never told anybody about, is that green chair a secret? <laughs> Not really, right? No. I mean, you you wouldn't use the word that way. So nobody but me knows about it, but it's not a secret. But say imagine I'm living alone. I haven't had anybody over to my apartment yet. And I also have a vintage Dokken poster hanging up on the wall. And that poster is the reason I haven't had anybody over to my apartment. Is that poster a secret? In that case, I think maybe it is. Yeah, I'm picturing in this scenario that you have an entire room set aside for this dock and poster and the green chair that you sit in while you stare at it. Right. Yeah. And I also sleep in the green chair, so I have immediate conscious access to the Dream Warriors. Wait, the Dream Warriors, that's Dokken, right? I'm not wrong about that, am I? Ooh, I, I'm not sure. I'm not a, I'm not a huge Dokken uh, expert. This would be the, the theme song for um, the, uh, the, the, the Freddy Krueger movie? Yeah. yeah. Don't want to dream no more. <laughs> anyway, th- this makes me think that the idea... Uh, of secrecy, it's something that we deploy as a read on intent, right? It's the intent to conceal. But there are also things that you don't want other people to know about that aren't really secrets, right? Like, uh, not to get too gross, but descriptive details of your excretory function. These are things you'd really prefer your friends and colleagues not know, <laughs> but would you call them secrets? Not really, right? No, I mean, it's, unless you're doing it, in, you know, in a, in, a re- in a really novel fashion, you're probably doing it like everybody else anyway. So Exactly. So you wouldn't want other people to know about this stuff, but you wouldn't call it a secret. And I think the reason is that you there's no reason to presume that your friends and colleagues would have any interest in knowing that information, right? Right. They don't know. You don't want them to know. And they wouldn't want to know. So there are a lot of things about you that other people don't know, but they're not secrets. I think secrets are the intersection of things that people don't know that you suspect they might want to know and that you don't want them to know. What do you think about that, Robert? Hmm. Yeah, I would say so. But that's a, I think that's a good way of initially defining it but then you get into like what does someone want to know and there's like there there are things they consciously and openly want to know and there are things that they they tell themselves they wouldn't want to know but if they were presented with an envelope or you know a, or a file or something then they might be tempted to look inside right that sort of thing and then uh, and then there's just varying levels of like realistic concern over the secret uh, being found out and just sort of anxiety, you know, like bu- building up in your mind that something is some dreadful secret or, you know, it would be terrible if other people found out about it. Yeah. So a lot of the experience of secrecy, I think, necessarily hinges on imagining what would be going on in other people's minds. It doesn't right. even necessarily depend on what other people actually would care about or how they would react. It's all about how you imagine other people would think about these details. Right. Yeah. And in many of these cases, too, you're imagining like yourself being the one who leaks the secret by accidentally letting it leak. Right. Now, here's an interesting take on this. I I was reading about uh, Jacques Derda, who is a 
20th century French philosopher and the, the father of deconstruction. This yeah, is the, a, the high priest of, uh, of postmodernism. Yeah, yeah. The, and a lot of this boils down to the critique of the relationship between text and meaning. Uh, but he had the following insight to share on the nature of secrets. And this, th- th- these basics come from uh, his work, How to Avoid Speaking. So breaks it down like this. A secret is something that must not be spoken. Okay? Okay. But I must possess it and not give it away for it to be a secret. Mm-hmm. So I must understand the secret or at least grasp the importance of it. But to possess that st- that secret, I do have to tell one person. I have to tell it to myself. Like <laughs> in, in containing the secret in my mind, I have to tell myself that secret. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I don't, I have forgotten it. And how can I keep a secret that I've forgotten? Right. Uh, to, and also to keep that secret, I must not keep the secret. Hmm. So, yeah, if you could have a secret excised from your memory, it wouldn't be a secret anymore. Right. So I, my, my advice is that uh, have this answer ready the next time someone asks you if you can keep a secret for them. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I realize some of that probably sounds a bit like some you know, academic nonsense. Uh, but, but think of it this way. Secrets have weight. And if I ask you to keep a secret, you must carry the weight of that secret, uh, even if it's slight, right? Uh, if, and if the information is disturbing, frightening, or sad, or what have you, you still have to roll it around in your mind uh, from time to time in order to not share it with someone else. Now, George Orwell would probably have disagreed uh, with some of that. He said, if you want to keep a secret, you must also hide it from yourself. But again, uh, part of keeping the secret is knowing not to let it out. And if you, I mean, if I guess if you can forget it, but then it's then you're not keeping a secret then, right? Right. Well, I mean, that's part of the fear. Like if you were to actually forget about a secret, Mm -hmm. you would not be in the prime position to defend against people finding out about it. Right. Right. Like if there's a secret that people could discover about you, you need to know about it in order to steer people away from discovering it. Right. Right. Like if uh, if you are not in if you're not yourself aware of what people shouldn't be finding out, you're not in a good defensive posture. Right. And if you. If you have to be alive and keeping the secret to be a secret keeper, if someone tells you the secret and then murders you, then you are not a secret keeper anymore. Yeah. Um, so and then again, I, well, I can see what Orwell's getting at here mm-hmm. uh, because Orwell wrote about self-deception a lot. You know, mm-hmm. 1984 is full of these ideas of doublethink and uh, and the ability to con- convince oneself to believe what one knows isn't true. Right. Uh, and that this is sort of the, the final abjection of the self. I, I get the feeling that the, that Orwell ultimately is not painting a nice picture of what secrets are here. Uh, it kind of gets down to the idea that so, so to keep a secret, you have to tell a lie. And maybe what Orwell is saying is if you can make that lie the truth of your heart, yeah. then you have become a true secret keeper. Right. But you've also sacrificed your integrity. Right. <laughs> uh, this uh, reminds me of another quote. Uh, and this one comes from James Joyce. And this is from Ulysses, uh, his, uh, his you know, famed 1922 work. He says, secrets, silent, stony, sit in the dark palaces of both our hearts. Secrets, weary of their tyranny, tyrants willing to be dethroned. Yeah, the secret wants to escape, right? Yeah. Like it, it, its reign cannot go on forever. It has a self-destructive impulse. Yeah. And I often do think of secrets this way, that se- a secret is like a bomb, mm-hmm. right? It's like a bomb in fiction. 
in that it's possible that a bomb will never go off, but the purpose of a bomb is to go off. Yeah. And like a secret almost psychologically for me plays the role of a thing that will be probably disclosed at some point in the future and you are just wondering the entire time when and how that will happen. And then when it is revealed, you have to choose then are you then are you going to come clean and say, oh, yes, I knew that all along. It was a secret and I was its keeper. And and, and that brings various uh, complications. Or do you say you pretend that you didn't know and now you have a new secret? You, the, the original secret has been uh, has been uh, you know declassified, but you've created the new one. The idea that you were never this keeper of this secret. Right. So here's a question. Mm-hmm. What's the relationship of secrets to lying? Uh, we, we were just talking about Orwell sort of gets into this. Joyce sort of hints at this. Most ethical systems would judge lying to be an immoral act, uh, barring, you know, extreme extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm. Like you might lie in the same kind of circumstances where you would use violence to defend yourself or others or something like that. Right. But generally lying is wrong. I, I think I feel that way. Um, so if it's wrong to lie, is it wrong to keep secrets? In other words, is it wrong to intentionally prevent other people from discovering facts that you suspect they would probably want to know or might want to know? Uh, I feel like the answer is probably not, right? So that exposes another tension in secrecy because some secrets are about things that are just none of anybody else's business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not always like, well, I stole something or I cheated on my partner or something like that. It might be things like uh there's a fact about you that you wouldn't naturally feel bad about, but you feel that other people might judge you unfairly if they knew it. Yeah, well, like the Dokken example is is good, you know. We, I feel like a lot of us have these uh these things in life we like, you know, um, you know, be it a, you know, a, a, a TV show or a, an album or something, and we're nostalgic for it. Yeah, and then there's this, there's this idea that we need to keep it a secret, at least from certain circles. Excluding temporary tactical secrets, like planning a surprise party or something like that, does, does this imply that a secret is always something that suggests an injustice? Either you did something bad and you don't want people to know, or there's something about you that you think people would treat you unfairly or unreasonably if they knew. Are there any exceptions to that? Um, well, I think you touched on strategic secrets, right? Right. Uh, the things that are not really something you want to keep secret forever, but it's just like, you know, it's a planning a surprise or giving a gift or something. Yeah, I mean, I... I guess one of my my sticking points that I, I kept coming across in this was is just the idea of unnecessary secrets that people attempt to burden you with. Yeah, uh, I've I found I tend not to find these in my own like social interactions, but I know that others have where you're talking to somebody and they say, oh, but don't tell anybody about this. And maybe, you know, maybe the secret they're sharing with you is something weighty, but a lot of times it's not. And it's something that you're, you're going to go and tell somebody else about anyway. But they've, they've, they've put the burden of keeping the secret on you. Also in, uh, in workplace environments, I've encountered this where, you know, someone's sharing just some really unimportant bit of, uh, you know, short-term strategy for the company. And right. they're like, oh, don't tell anybody. Yeah, yet. don't tell anybody. And it's like, well, why did you tell me? <laughs> Because, because it's a, you had to share your crummy secret with me and now I have to keep it or, or break my vow, uh, over something so piddling, you know? Somebody should start a website along the lines of post secret. You know about post secret, right? Pop secret? The, the popcorn? No, no, post secret. <laughs> no, the, this website where, uh, 
this dude was collecting postcards of people would anonymously write down secrets and send them. To oh them. yeah, I do remember this. Uh, yeah, I mean, so that was an interesting way of of people sharing their secrets without actually disclosing to people who would know about them, you know, anonymous secret sharing. Uh, and there are probably some good questions we can talk about later in this episode when we talk about the science, about mm-hmm. whether that properly relieves any of the tension brought on by secret keeping. But there should be a, a, an analogy of that. That's a website that's just don't tell anybody yet <laughs> for all work related secrets where yeah. people as soon as you get an email that says don't tell anybody yet or as soon as you get out of that meeting you anonymously go and upload the facts <laughs> you can even have them time released i guess yeah um no these these are all excellent points now i uh, i do want to throw in one thing here too like when you get into secrets you also get into this idea of confessionals right like to to unburden yourself of a secret is to make a confession and mm-hmm. uh, confessions have have played an important role, say, in, uh, you know, in, in Catholic tradition. Uh, like that instantly comes to mind in a lot of the studies that we looked at here. The idea of someone going and being able to unburden themselves in an anonymous or semi-anonymous fashion. Right. Uh, likewise, various uh, self-help hotlines. If, so, if the secret that you're keeping is something, say, bound up in personal identity or, or you know, Feelings of, say, suicide, you might call a suicide hotline or a, um, uh, or say a sexual abuse hotline. And these would be appropriate places to unburden yourself of this information and, uh, you know, receive expert advice on what to do about it. Now, that might be a good example of an exception to what I was talking about earlier, because I can imagine you talked about abuse, like people who have undergone a certain kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, they didn't do anything bad. They might suspect that other people would react unreasonably or judge them, but they might not, too. In that case, they might want to keep a secret for some other reason. They didn't do anything wrong. They don't think people will be mean to them about it or Mm -hmm. think differently about them. They just don't want people to know. Right. Yeah. uh, I mean, it it just comes back around again to this very complex and – and, and uh, you know, amorphous uh, quality of secrets. Like, not all secrets are are equal. Now, one of the things you mentioned earlier about uh, about the idea of a secret being harmful or not, um, it's it's worth noting that uh, you know there are many parents out there who argue you should not teach young kids about secret keeping because it might be exploited later on in uh, in abusive scenarios. Oh, right. Where the abuser is saying, "Hey, you have to keep this secret." Uh, I actually uh, ran, ran across some advice regarding this from the National Crime Prevention Council, and they stress the following, that you would want to uh, teach a small child, first of all, if a secret can't hurt someone or something, you keep it. Okay. If a secret can hurt someone or something, you tell an adult, and if you're not sure, you tell an adult. Right. So, so it's got like a, a default mode of tell. Yeah, yeah. Which I I think is a that kind of breaks down when you start bringing it into the more complex adult scenarios of say you know state secrets or workplace secrets or you know the the, the secret desires of your heart but uh, you know for a childhood scenario I think those those guidelines seem to make a lot of sense I think that might be good guidelines for adults I mean think about that you uh, if you're not sure mm-hmm. that it's better to keep it a secret you should err on the side of telling yeah yeah. I mean, that seems logical to me. I mean, it's the same reason that you wouldn't normally endorse lying except in some extenuating circumstance where you've got to, you know, do something defensive or save lives or something like that. Generally, it's better if people don't lie to each other. 
the problem is that uh, a child can tell an adult. The adult is the default, uh, you know, authority figure. But who's right. an adult to tell? God? The police. The police. Obviously. Okay. You call the cops every time you got a secret. I'd like to report a docking poster in my apartment. <laughs> Okay, well, I think it's about time to start getting into the science, and maybe yeah. we, we can transition there uh, by bringing up one last thing that I think is also interesting. Why is it so pleasurable to share <laughs> secrets with a person or a small group? I'm sure you've had this experience, Robert, right? Oh, yeah. Like, sharing secrets, is a, it's a well-known bonding behavior. You're a middle schooler, and you get together with your close friends and tell them who you've got a crush on. Or when you have, you know, one way that you know you found your soulmate, not to mm-hmm. get too cheesy, is that you confess thoughts and opinions to them that you would never say in front of anybody else. It's fun and delightful to share your secrets with that person. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's also, um, you know, the counterpoint is that it's disappointing, isn't it, when you go to share a secret with someone and they already know the secret. Yeah. Because then, you know, your, your disappointment is, is, is twofold. On one hand... You, you don't get to share, be the, the sharer of this secret, and they were maybe keeping it from you. <laughs> yeah, but but when the reaction is positive and when there's mm-hmm. you know mutual discovery between a, a, a two people or a small group of people, why does that feel so good? It's intensely socially pleasurable. Well, I think I think a lot of it is you have to you have to boil down all of this to sort of um, you know prehistoric uh, human scenarios, right? Like what were secrets for for the vast majority of human history? What did secrets consist of? They had to do with what the location of food and resources, maybe. Um, the you know the 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 position of dangers that uh, you face be they predators or other uh, uh, human populations mm-hmm. and therefore to share a secret was to share survival with someone. I feel like disclosure of secrets to close companions it's it's sort of like initiating every time you do it it initiates a further traversal into the boundaries of trust like you're mm-hmm. going deeper into the trust landscape which probably I think feels good for the same reasons that starting a new romantic relationship feels good you know that feeling of euphoria people often report when they're dating somebody new um, it, it's like you're, you're going into new social territory and it feels good to forge newer, stronger, better relationships. It's like playing a, like a card game and in the opening hands, where like none of the cards have been played and every, every play is something uh, substantially new. Yeah. 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 Um, but also there, there's an analogy to that, I think, that is institutional secret knowledge. It's that same principle of sharing with a person or a small group and getting pleasure out of that, but making it part of an organization like the secret knowledge that forms the basis of attraction to secret societies and one of my favorites, Gnostic religions. Yeah. Like if you go back to the first few centuries CE, you see the, these Gnostic forms of Christianity, which were the, these strange versions of Christianity. They seem very alien to us now, but they're fascinating to study because they were built all on the idea of like you'd have a, a public version of the religion that was accessible to the masses. Mm-hmm. And then you'd have a private version of the religion based on secret knowledge that was only available to the insiders. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you saw this in Greek traditions as well. Like you see it. You really see, see it. And I guess in most major religions there's 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 the the public religion and then there are various esoteric versions of it esoteric buddhism etc mm-hmm. and then branching cults and what have right. you and, and heresies from there on out i get intense pleasure just from thinking about that and mm-hmm. studying it i can imagine it's so much more intense 
to actually be a part of that, to be one of the people who gets led in on the secret. Yeah. And then just you know, to, and to be led by the secret too. the idea that there are secrets that will be revealed to you if you merely click on this article and learn the <laughs> learn the, the 10 secrets of toning your abs or what have you. Isn't that a, the, the great way to clickbait you into submission is mm-hmm. just to promise a secret will be revealed? Yes. <laughs> so we talked a little bit about children and secrets, and mm-hmm. I, I started to think, like, at what point do children actually gain a sense of secrecy? At, w- at what point do they understand secrets and become capable of keeping them? Uh, and uh, I did find that there was a study uh, by uh, Peskin and uh, Ardino in social development in 2003 that tried to study the relationship between childhood development of theory of mind and the ability to do two things. One of them was play hide and seek, which is a kind of secret keeping. But the other one was explicitly keeping a secret. So they tested children who were three, who were four and were five at playing hide and seek and keeping a secret. And this was partially because those are ages where there was some existing knowledge about how much theory of mind children generally have at those ages. And and theory of mind is the concept of being able to imagine the thoughts and intentions of other people. Yeah, uh, it's interesting that hide and seek comes up because I've I've certainly played a lot of hide and seek with my son uh, over the years, and he's Mm -hmm. he's five now. And earlier on, uh, hide and seek tended to consist of of him hiding Mm -hmm. and then running out and and getting me. Like (laughs) it was really hard to to you know relate the the idea is that you're supposed to hide and wait for me to find you. Like the excitement would build up and then you would just jump up and and come to me. Right. I mean, hide and seek requires that you try to think from the seeker's perspective when you are a hider. Yeah, and then likewise the keeping of secrets. You know, we get a we we, you know get get a a gift for someone. Um, You know, it's generally going to be like a gift for me or a gift uh, uh, for my wife, and uh, and he would. He would really like reveal the secret immediately uh-huh. uh, when he was when he was really young, or even like want to unwrap the the present right there. There was the the idea of there being any kind of suspense that that there would be some pleasure in not knowing and guessing mm-hmm. was something that developed uh, um, over the years. Well, that's what this study found. So they found that across the span of three to five, your ability to do both of these activities changes drastically. Three-year-olds just are terrible at keeping secrets and mm-hmm. at playing hide-and-seek. They, they couldn't really hack it. Right. But by four, by age four, most kids were on, on the secret train. And by five, five-year-olds could keep a secret. Yes. Yeah, that, and that that matches up with my experience pretty well. And this brings me to the the secrets of kindergarten or kindergartners, anyway. And then this is actually um, this is actually really cool because today, as we're recording this, this is my son's first day of kindergarten. Congratulations! So, oh well, thank you. I mean, you know, it, 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 there's not much you can say. You can't say like, "Well, I'm, he's the first person in my family to go to kindergarten," you know. But um, <laughs> no, no, it is a, it is a big deal. Uh, but uh, but it was interesting to go through all of this with these various studies in mind uh, because. Um, as you pointed out, various studies point to this as a time, you know, age five, moving in on six, when uh, group-related attitudes and behavior begin to manifest. Mm-hmm. Group membership begins to influence their learning, their expectations and behavior. And this includes resource sharing within their group. Okay. And this is where we get into secrets because a, a secret is a resource. 
That's interesting. Yeah. You think a secret as like an informational resource has value. Yeah. I mean, like I say, you take it back to a prehistoric analogy and like a secret is where, where are the good hunting grounds? Where are the, where are the good berry bushes? Right. Where is there clean water? That sort of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the study that I was looking at here, this is, uh, comes from, uh, Antonia Mish, Harriet Over, and Melinda Carpenter. And it's titled, I Won't Tell, Young Children Show Loyalty to Their Group by Keeping Group Secrets. And this was published in the Journal of Experimental Child Psychology in 2016. Okay. Now, I'm sure this study sounds delightful, right? Kindergartners interacting, saying the darndest things, keeping secrets. Uh, but, but the paper is actually quite disturbing read at times uh, because, uh, for instance, it touches on uh, racial bias. Oh, like so that's part of uh, in-group variation on how children keep or relate secrets? Yeah, uh, it, in, it ends up not playing as much into the study as our because they ended up not, they didn't record any racial information about the kids, but they do mm-hmm. point out some, some sobering details here. Now, I previously read that implicit racial bias doesn't really rear its ugly head uh, in children until around age seven or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the researchers here, they point to a 2007 study uh, that found, quote, White children between four and seven years of age favor other white children who positively interact with a racial in-group member, such as a white child, over white children who interact with a racial out-group member, such as a black child. Oh, no, that's sad. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, like I say, this is, uh, uh, quite a, quite, quite some details to have knocking around in your head when you're doing your first day in kindergarten. Anyway, for the purposes of this study, the researchers uh, didn't include any racial information. They set out to assess children's loyalty by testing their willingness to keep a group secret. Uh, previous studies cited in the article indicated that children began to understand the idea of privileged information around age four okay. and that children can keep secrets in some context at this point. So that goes pretty much with what we were saying earlier, right? right. By age four, most kids could do it. Right. So here's how the study broke down. Children were assigned to color groups, you know, like green, red, yellow, etc. Okay. And they were told a secret by, uh, by, by two members of their own group or a member of an out group. Okay. So that's the initial setup. And you have a new neutral character who shows up and tries to buy secrets with colorful stickers. Oh, okay. So loyalty means you get no stickers in this scenario. Bummer. Because, uh, because the, the tempter is coming around and, uh, the, and I should point out that the, the tempter here is a puppet and the, the secret shares are also puppets. <laughs> and the, uh, the, the character whose name is Siri is attempting to, to buy your secrets with these stickers. Siri is going to have the gender of the child that they're interacting with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the stickers are going to range from just like a, a red sticker, a green sticker, yellow sticker, et cetera, to, uh, there's also a, a heart shaped red sticker. Uh, which is, you know, sounds like it's pretty cool. Uh, so, well, uh, uh, so one thing I think we should say, just to make clear, if you're like, uh, how how motivated could you be? I think when you're a little kid, stickers are highly oh, yeah. motivating. Stickers are a hot commodity. I mean, this, stickers are what you get when you uh, get a shot at the uh, at the doctor's office. Stickers are what you get in, uh, as a prize for not causing a, a disruption in the checkout line. Yeah, stickers are a lot of fun. I mean, I feel like when you're four or five, stickers are basically cut up hot dogs to an animal, yeah, you know, to a cat or a dog. So uh, they tested 48 five-year-olds, 50-50 gender split, and they also uh, tested 48 four-year-olds. The prediction was that we'd see more loyalty in the five-year-olds. 
Uh, and the children were just from daycare centers in a mid-sized city. Mm-hmm. Again, no racial or ethnic details were recorded. A human served as a moderator. Uh, the male-female hand puppets acted as secret keepers. The hand puppet, Siri, was the briber. And uh, you also had a book of secrets factored into the experiment, and this was provided by the puppets. Okay. So they conducted the experiment, and, uh, oh, and by the way, children who could not remember their color group were kicked out. So some of the children who they were... Well, they had to, you know, they had to, because a lot of it had to do, you need to identify with group yellow or group green. But if you're asked what group you're in and you say, you know, oh, I'm in room seven of the kindergarten or whatever, I'm in, you know, Mrs. Williamson's class, that's not going to cut it because you need to identify with the color group for the experiment to work. Mm -hmm. So the results were that overall, across both ages and conditions, the majority of children kept the secrets, 61%, no gender effects. Uh, children were more inclined to keep in-group secrets than out-group secrets. So among the five-year-olds uh, the, the, who, again, performed better, you had 21 who kept in-secrets within their group, 13 who kept out-secrets. Among the four-year-olds, 15 kept in-secrets, 13 kept out-secrets. And you'll be happy to know, uh, parents, that all the children went home with two super fancy stickers <laughs> and not any of the bribe stickers. So no, so hopefully nobody went home thinking that uh, ratting out secrets was a profitable uh, venture. So this is kind of interesting because it looks like, at least within this experiment, uh, who knows what would happen if you tried to repeat it, but within this experiment, five-year-olds had learned a lot more in-group loyalty than the four-year-olds mm-hmm. had. Like there was there was less of a difference in the four-year-olds between whether they kept secrets in-group and out-group. But with the five-year-olds, significantly more of them kept secrets in the group, right? Right. Yeah. So I get you know I guess we, we're seeing the you know the 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 advancement the evolution of uh, the individual's ability to prioritize secrets yeah. and and prioritize privileged information to look at the green team and say you're not one of us I'll betray you yes uh and I uh, I included a picture in our notes here of the the puppet uh and maybe I can throw this on the landing page for this episode at stuff to blow your mind com but I should point out the tempter is a delightful looking puppet and is it's not a, a punching <laughs> strawberry witch yeah but it's not a, like a punch and judy show devil or anything <laughs> no this thing this it's going to be in the next Annabelle movie it'll be <laughs> Annabelle's sidekick waving its little cotton hands summoning Pazuzu <laughs> All right. Well, we have we have one more study on uh, small children here, I think, to, to reference before we take our first break. OK. And that is a study titled Secret Sharing Interactions Between a Child, Robot and Adult. What? Yeah. And this is by Cindy L. Bethel, Matthew R. Stevenson and Brian uh, Cecilletti. So in this one, uh, it basically asks, asks the question, hey, well, how are children going to uh, deal with secrets if they're um, if they're interacting with a humanoid robot? Uh, as well as, say, a human adult. If they're interacting in specifically, too, with a, a stuffed animal dog or a robotic dog. And, uh, this was, uh, this was a pretty interesting study to look at. So here's just a quick quote from it to give you, uh, an example here. The quote, the qualitative results from these studies indicate that the children were readily able to apply their interaction style with an adult 
to their interactions with the robot in both the pilot and follow-up studies. Future research needs to be conducted, but it is expected that with longer interactions with the robot, the children will treat the robot more as a peer, which would be beneficial in gathering sensitive information. So I guess the idea here is that maybe uh, a robot could be used to elicit the sharing of secrets, especially like if if children have been abused or something like that, Mm -hmm. the children might be in some cases uh, able to admit that to a humanoid robot. Yeah, I, I think so. It makes me wonder, though, about like what would be the applications for uh, for adults. Like, could we gain something by sharing our secrets with robots? Could we have robot confessionals? I I was wondering the same exact thing. Like, is that the next step up from post secret? Well, you, you can you can confess anonymously. Mm-hmm. Maybe better than that, but not as destructive as confessing to a person is confessing to a non judgmental Terminator. Well, you know, it, it does remind me of various, uh, I believe, NASA studies that have looked into the idea of creating, like, com- basically a computerized therapist and uh, uh, that a virtual therapist that one would interact with on lengthy space missions to check on your uh, your psychological well-being. Isn't that in the movie Moon? Yeah, it is. That's right. That's a major plot point in that with the Kevin Spacey voiced robot that he, he speaks to and relates to. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it's not it's not too far, uh, far off, I think. All right. Well, I think we should take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will get into the weeds with some complicated research on the psychology of secrets. All right, we're back. Okay, Robert. Now, we're going to get into research on secrets uh, in a couple of areas that I, I want to admit at the outset I think is thorny and confusing. Okay. Um, so one of the things that I want to focus on is the research on the health effects of holding secrets and the supposed health benefits of revealing secrets. Maybe before we get into this, Robert, just what would your intuitions be? Do you, would you just assume that having secrets is bad for your health? Well, my my initial reply is that again, not all secrets are created equally. Yeah, and it's, but I also know that yes, even individuals carrying a lot of anxiety in mm-hmm. themselves, you know, if you, if you can't sleep at night because of the the secret you're keeping, like there are going to be some health effects there. At the same time. I'm also hesitant to to like to make too many you know firm declarations about about the health effects there without looking at the research because you do get in you potentially get into the gray area of like oh well negative thoughts cause disease and mm-hmm. and so forth um, that can uh, you know be taken to the extreme by uh, by pseudoscientific uh, ideas. One thing that I do think is interesting right now is the the body of scientific research on the mind body connection. Mm-hmm. You know to what extent your mind affects physiological health. There's lots of super solid research indicating that there is an extremely uh, serious link between the two. And yet the, the whole mind body medicine thing can definitely be taken to pseudoscientific extremes. Like you say, mm-hmm. like people can start to say like that you can, you know, think your cancer away and stuff right. like that, which uh, no evidence indicates that's the case. But at the same time, there are tons of studies that do seem to be reliable and do show that mindset has measurable health outcomes. Right. I mean, like I say, you can you can just look at an extreme example and just imagine somebody having to keep a secret and it's causing them such anxiety that they have trouble either eating or sleeping. A very realistic scenario 
uh, and, and one that you has very, would have very obvious health effects. Yeah. Or just simply causing stress. I mean, right. we know that stress, stress causes the release of neurotransmitters and mm-hmm. hormones that can have effects within the body. Uh, having chronic stress is bad for you. But anyway, let's look at the research. So uh, back in 2002, the psychologist, Dr. Anita Kelly, who is a professor of psychology at Notre Dame, published a book called The Psychology of Secrets. And she spent a lot of her career uh, studying the effects of secrecy and what happens when people reveal secrets. So I want to look at one particular paper of hers from 1999 in Current Directions in Psychological Science called Revealing Personal Secrets. And I thought this was interesting. So in this paper... Kelly collects the research on the consequences of revealing personal secrets. And a personal secret here is a secret that directly involves the secret keeper. So it's not one of those don't tell anybody yet things at work. Right? Mm. It directly involves you. It's a secret about you. And then she does something fascinating. She begins to develop a framework for when and under what circumstances you should reveal a secret. I don't know if I've ever heard any advice along those lines before. Well, I mean, aside from the uh, the, the the National Crime Prevention Council uh, tips that we heard earlier for right? children, yeah, well, right. I've never heard anything like this for adults. So she starts by acknowledging something interesting. Uh, for decades, at the time this had been published, it had been conventional wisdom among psychologists and therapists that secret keeping was bad for the mind and the body. Like we were just talking about, it seems intuitive, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And Kelly points out that research began to bear this out. For example, um, uh, research up to that point indicated that people who tend to conceal personal secrets had more physical uh, body complaints like headaches, nausea, ulcers, and back pain. And they also tended to have more anxiety, shyness, and depression than people who didn't conceal information. She cites research showing that disclosure of personal information is associated with better health outcomes, such as better immunological function uh, and fewer trips to the doctor. And uh, one experiment showed that even simply writing down a disclosure of facts about a private traumatic event had an effect. They like they took medical students and had them write about personal traumas and then gave them a hepatitis B vaccine. And those students had significantly higher antibody levels at four and six months later than subjects who wrote about control topics that had nothing to do with deeply held emotional events and then received the same vaccine. So if, if true, that's very interesting. And so if it's true that disclosing personal secrets leads to better health outcomes on average, why is this the case? Based on her own research, Kelly concludes that the reason revealing a secret can have positive effects is that it allows the secret keeper to gain new insights into the secret, leading to closure on the subject. And in this model, a kept secret, it's, you know, I used the analogy earlier, it's like a bomb that hasn't gone off yet. But maybe a better way to think about it is that a kept secret is an unsolved problem Mm. or an unfinished task. And thus it occupies an outsized space in the mind and requires frequent attention and mental energy. Uh, and Kelly actually evokes the uh, Zygarnik effect. Ah, yeah, I believe we just, we've discussed that on the show before. Yeah, we have. We talked about it in our Tetris episodes. Well, yes. One of the reasons that Tetris might be so compelling is that it's an eternally unfinished project and mm-hmm. it always wants to call you back for more. Uh, but, uh, the, so the term Zygarnik effect, it comes to us from the Russian psychologist and psychiatrist, uh, Bluma Wolfovna Zygarnik, who lived from 1900 to 1988. She first observed it in the 1920s. 
And there, there's a, a quote from Roy Baumeister and Brad Bushman in their 2008 textbook, Social Psychology and Human Nature, that says, quote, the Zygarnik effect is a tendency to experience automatic, intrusive thoughts about a goal that one has pursued, but the pursuit of which has been interrupted. That is, if you start working toward a goal and fail to get there, thoughts about the goal will keep popping into your mind while you're doing other things, as if to remind you to get back on track to finish reaching that goal. So, I mean, keeping a secret is a task. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and therefore it requires, it requires mental energy to, to varying degrees to, uh, to, to, to keep it. Uh, like I keep thinking of, um, this analogy, uh, and I'm not the only one to come up with this. I actually encountered it in some of uh, the studies we're looking at. The idea of there being like a free flowing stream, right? Mm-hmm. And then every secret you have to keep is like putting a, a stone in there that mm-hmm. has to be navigated around and it potentially changes the flow of social interaction. And, uh, yeah, if you have, if you throw some big rocks in there, if you, th- uh, if you throw a lot of little rocks in there, then you're going to potentially, um, alter the flow of the river to, uh, you know, to considerable or even catastrophic levels. Well, I know it's just a metaphor, but yeah, exactly. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you, you essentially dam the river and a dam can burst. Right. It eventually will if there's nothing to relieve the flow. Yeah. I think, I think that makes perfect sense that it would be tied in with the Zygarnik effect. Yeah. So this does feel very intuitive. Now, I do think we, we might undercut this with more research we talk about going forward, but it certainly feels intuitive. It's one of those things. It's, it's got that truthiness, right? Yeah. <laughs> but truthiness can be deceiving. Uh, but so the idea here, at least, is that when, when people disclose a secret and talk through it, and this is key for for uh, Kelly. It's not just that you reveal the secret, but that you have the ability to talk through it with someone and gain insights on it that allow you to achieve closure or to sort of close the book and understand something. Hmm. And that's, of course, going to be more complicated than it sounds, depending on what the secret is. I mean, for instance, on one on one hand, it would seem to indicate that, yes, seeking, say, professional help for whatever your you know, quote unquote secret might be. So for instance, if, if it uh, has some sort of, uh, you know, abuse connotation and then you, you say, uh, you know, call up the, the rain hotline, mm-hmm. you're able to talk with someone who can steer you in the right direction of, of how best to, to deal with this. But on the other hand, like closing the book on it is, is easier said than done, right? Right. Like, totally. So yeah. Well, and under what's you, you would to, to really close the book on a secret it has to be a rather pointless secret. It has to be one of those dumb work secrets or, or you know, mildly interesting uh, social secrets. Well, close the book is my language. I mean, th- mm-hmm. that might not be the best metaphor, but what it is is that you, you want to achieve some kind of resolution. You gain new insights that uh, make this no longer an unsolved problem. So I think one example would be if, if someone has uh, – has been keeping their, say, sexual orientation a, a secret. They're, they're closeted. Yeah. And therefore, like, coming out of the closet, even to, like, a select group of people, that would enable you to then, like, own it and deal with it in a new way. Yeah. But it wouldn't mean that you're, like, you're done, you know. Right. Like, that's, it's really the beginning of a new phase in that particular journey. Yeah, totally. And that, that's, as we've said, not all secrets are created equally. That, that's a different kind of secret mm-hmm. than many other secrets. Uh, like, for example, and some of the research we've looked at today shows that sexual orientation is very often the kind of secret where 
where a person feels they can reveal to some people and not to others. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you have to play management of different revelation groups. And, and to a certain extent, management of different identities, different versions of yourself. Yeah. I mean, of course, everyone does that to certain degrees, I think, but, uh, but we're talking about having to do it to a degree to where it it would have uh, potentially negative uh, effects on your uh, on your psyche. And that's a great point, because revealing a secret might not always lead to positive outcomes. Right. And, yeah. and Kelly acknowledges this. So she's trying to come up with a rubric of when should you reveal a secret? You've got a secret that's eating away at you. When and where and how should you reveal it? Uh, it appears that the circumstances under which you reveal the secret are important. So obviously you can imagine lots of revelations that would make everything worse. You can imagine a scenario where, uh, you know, you've been cheating on your spouse with an alien robot from Enceladus. Okay. And, you know, you're happy in your marriage, but, you know, that happened, that happened, maybe not say it's ongoing, but it happened one time. Okay. And you reveal it to your spouse and your spouse is not forgiving and he or she uh, becomes angry and this leads to alienation in your relationship and maybe it ends the relationship. Are you better off then? I mean, you might say maybe, uh, maybe it was worth it to be honest, but then you could also say, well, what if this destroyed the most important relationship in my life? Um, so th- well, there are a lot back, of questions. It about, comes like, back to the woman in the snow, right? Because right. on one level, yeah, the husband gets to, to live, uh, you know, secret free, right? but he no longer has his wife and, and he has to tell his children in the morning that, Hey, sorry, mom's not here anymore because dad's a lousy secret keeper. Yeah. So it's confusing. Like it might better, might be better to be honest in the long run. But it might not be. I mean, it might be just destructive to people's lives in the long run. And so so taking into account complications and consequences is is a real question. Um, another complication. Kelly points out research is pretty clear. People don't usually keep your secrets when you <laughs> share them. Uh, one one piece of research she cites is from 1997, which found that college students. So, OK, this is college students. Maybe they don't keep secrets particularly well. But uh-huh. at least in this group, uh, when students shared an emotional event with a confidant, the confidant reported telling at least one other person about that disclosure in 66 to 78 percent of the cases. Hmm. So most of the time you're going to go tell somebody else about this deep emotional thing that somebody shared with you. Huh. But again, this is why we need the robots. The robot can be programmed to be a secret keeper. Yeah. You can have a robot that's only purpose is to keep your your one secret. Then do you have to destroy the robot or is it important that the robot no, no, no. continue to exist? Well, because we come back to our, our, our initial uh, philosophical um, discussion, the, the robot has to know the secret, understand the secret. Otherwise, the robot's not a secret keeper. <laughs> it's just it's it's deleted. It's the same as telling somebody and then murdering them. OK, so we cut to the chase here. When should you reveal a personal secret for maximum benefit? Well, Kelly thinks in in this paper, at least, that you should reveal a personal secret when you've been able to identify a confidant who can be trusted not to tell your secret to others. And that's kind of rare who you can depend on to be nonjudgmental. So they're not going to say, like, you monster and who you can expect to help you gain new insights into your secret and bring you feelings of closure. Uh, so that's interesting because that sounds to me like she's basically describing a counselor or therapist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have the same thought. Like that would seem to line up with, uh, you know, a, a, a certified, uh, you know, self-help hotline such as, you know, suicide prevention or RAIN or something like mm-hmm. that. 
or or like an individual counselor or therapist right, yeah, who's yeah. like either way it's somebody who it's their job to not be judgmental but to just try to help you mm-hmm. uh it's their job to try to help you find insights and and understand things about yourself and about what you're telling them and it's part of their job to keep you keep everything confidential all right so well that sounds good then what's the what's the possible downside <laughs> well you know so i mentioned a minute ago that part of uh, what went into her study was the idea that there are negative health consequences mm-hmm. for from keeping secrets. And I think the picture on that is not entirely clear. There have been plenty of studies showing some kind of correlation between negative health outcome from keeping secrets. But just the, the results are scattered and inconsistent. Um, so, for example, what if it's not keeping a secret that does much harm to your health? But what if some of these results are triggered by a different level of correlation, meaning that the kind of people who keep more secrets naturally tend to be less healthy people to begin with? Hmm. Does that make sense? So it's not that keeping a secret makes you unhealthy, but that unhealthy people are more likely to keep secrets. Okay. I mean, that's like from a a scientific standpoint, that's that's that makes perfect sense. That would be something you'd want to explore. Right. Of course, it's hard to imagine a real life, uh, like conscious version of this where you're like, oh, that one looks sickly. That's my, <laughs> that's my secret keeper. <laughs> well, uh, so Anita Kelly was uh, the same author as the earlier study. She was one of the authors of a later study along with Jonathan Yip called Is Keeping a Secret or Being a Secretive Person Linked to uh, Psychological Symptoms in the Journal of Personality in 2006. And this study tried to compare negative uh, health symptoms across time to figure out whether keeping a specific secret or generally being a secretive person had a greater effect on health outcomes. And in this study, keeping a specific secret, so when they found people said, yeah, I have a secret I'm keeping, that did not, in fact, correlate to worse health outcomes. Uh, what they found was, in fact, that people who were generally secretive people were more vulnerable to more symptoms to begin with. Huh. Yeah, I also saw an article on psychology today with the, uh, uh, with, uh, with Kelly and she, she pointed out yeah, that the, the, the work showed that keeping a major secret did not predict worse health at all, but that she did say that you can argue that secret keeping is still an important part of developing intimacy, et cetera. So you have to factor in all these other, um, aspects of secret keeping, um, you know, in addition to the health, obviously. Right. Yeah, so this is not to say like if, if secrecy doesn't actually affect your health, then there's nothing to worry about. You know, it might affect relationships and everything like that. Yeah. Uh, but then maybe it does affect health. And so this, this is where things just continue to be messy. Kelly is one of the authors of another paper with Robert Rodriguez from 2006 called Health Effects of Disclosing Secrets to Imagined Accepting versus Non-Accepting Confidants in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology. And this one seems to go back in the other direction. And just to be real quick, basically what this study did is it had students write down uh, confessions of personal secrets while imagining three different conditions, either imagining writing to an accepting confidant, somebody who is there listening to you, to what you confess and is not judging you, to a non-accepting confidant or to no confidant, just writing into the void. And what they found was that the students who wrote the confession to to an imagined accepting confidant had reported fewer illnesses uh, after eight weeks than did the ones who wrote to a non-accepting confidant. And if that 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 seems kind of unbelievable, but if that's true, that that 
makes you think that just like the imagining of having a secret accepted or rejected is uh, incredibly powerful and and produces long running stress effects on the body. Well, I mean, it comes back down to the idea of survival within groups uh, yeah. you know, for the vast majority of, of human history. So even in the study, the authors pointed out that, you know, if you're if you're keeping personal secrets, you're basically running scenarios about being ostracized. For, for, for the secret you're keeping. Yeah. And therefore you're kind of in a, in a constant state of, of fearing your survival. Because again, t- nowadays, if you're ostracized from your social group, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to starve to death mm-hmm. in the wilderness. But for the vast majority of human history, that was more of a reality. That was, that was more of a legitimate possibility of, uh, of being ostracized by your immediate group. Yeah. So I don't know. What, what do you think about the health effects of secrecy, Robert? I, I'm getting a, from the research I've looked at, I'm getting a very jumbled picture. Yeah. I do think that there is some kind of, there does appear to be some kind of correlation between secrecy and some negative health outcomes. Uh, but the, the research does appear to go back and forth and it's not all always focused on the same question asked the same way every time. Right. So this is one of those areas where I, I don't feel super confident to pronounce solid discoveries just yet. Yeah, and again, it just it comes back again to the unequal nature of secrets, and even like it's going to be relative to the individual because you could have one individual that can can keep the secret of what happened in the dark cave, uh, you know, and they can just file it away with a lot more ease, mm-hmm. you know, maybe maybe due to some sort of unique wiring of their, you know, their cognitive equipment, but they're able to sort of compartmentalize it and, and keep that secret. Someone else, they could they could be in the scenario where they cannot sleep at night because they keep remembering the, the glowing red eyes from the cave. Well, yeah, definitely, because a, a secret, obviously, in many of the cases where it's going to be most destructive, is highly related to the idea of guilt or yeah. shame. And if you're a type of person who, say, has a low guilt quotient, mm-hmm. I don't want to say you're a psychopath or something like that, but mm-hmm. if, if you don't tend to experience much of a guilty conscience, I can't imagine secrets bothering you all that much. Yeah. Unless yeah. you're just constantly worried about being discovered, you know, not so much worried about the original content of the secret. Huh. Yeah. And uh, and uh, one way to look at this might be to perform an exercise where you look at your own life and, like, move your secrets out of the way and then think of things that you don't recognize as secrets that but could be reclassified as secrets if you cared enough about them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, give me an example. What do you mean? Okay, so say uh, let's let's see what what would be an example. Um, I guess well, guess one would be like what if I what if I stay up one night, my wife has gone to bed, and I watch say Rawhead Rex or you know some <laughs> some horror movie of of questionable quality, and I'm not I'm not keeping it a secret. Uh, it's just in the background, and maybe I don't even tell her because she because I know that she probably doesn't care and doesn't mm-hmm. want to hear about the plot of Rawhead Rex. Right. Um, but if I were to, but, but I could reclassify that information and say, no, this is a secret. I, she cannot know about my watching Rawhead Rex. You know, if you start sort of tweaking the reasoning for why you didn't reveal this, uh, then it can, it can take on new form. Yeah. I mean, as we talked about earlier, it seems very much that secrecy is in the mind, not of the beholder, but of the secret keeper, Mm -hmm. uh, and in what they want other people to know. I mean, 
So you might be a person who ate the whole sleeve of Oreos or whatever, <laughs> or, or ate the whole sleeve of saltines for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's just, you know, you're a comedian and you make it, you build a whole bit around that fact. It's funny. I ate the whole sleeve of Oreos. Or you might be a person who's legitimately ashamed and embarrassed <laughs> and wouldn't want people to know. Yeah. Okay, I think that's a good example. Yeah. And it doesn't have anything to do with the opinions of other people as they exist outside you. It's just what you think about them. Yeah. And what kind of person am I? Yeah. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to get into the physical burdens of secrecy. And uh, and at the very end, we'll briefly discuss nudity. All right. We're back. So, Robert, here's the thing. You ever think about metaphorical perception? Like, it's no surprise that when we perceive physical quantities, our perceptions are colored by our thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, for example, if you're tired, you might estimate that it's actually later in the day than it is, right? Something Mm -hmm. like that. Makes sense. But one odd way of thinking about influences on our perception is when our metaphors color our perception. Here's an example. Uh, A 2011 study by Schneider et al., found that if you think the contents of a book are important, you judge the book to weigh more when you hold it. Huh. Like, so importance, we have a metaphor that says something that's important is heavy. It's a weighty matter. Huh. So like someone who puts a lot of uh, faith in, say, a a Bible or a Quran or some other sacred text, Mm -hmm. like holding it in their hand, they're on some level perceiving it as being heavier than an equal, you know, an, an equally sized, equally weighted volume of, say, um, uh, you know, vampire romance, vampire book. yeah, romance books. Yeah. Uh, and, so, and I do want to point out that actually the authors of the study I just cited do think that the association between weight and importance is actually deeper than just metaphorical association. Hmm. But th- th- clearly some amount of metaphorical association is there. So if we conceive of secrets as a burden, as we often have throughout the episode, uh, you know, it's something you're carrying around with you. Does that exact a metaphorical psychological toll on the body and the mind? Does your body treat you as if you're carrying something when you're carrying a secret, carrying something heavy? That's an interesting idea. I mean, I've I've actually heard people say, oh, so-and-so really laid some heavy stuff on me. You know, yeah. like bringing to mind the idea that you were you were on the ground and they have they have physically placed a weight on your body. And now it is more difficult to move because of it. I want to cite a scientifically rigorous case study, which is that there's a scene where there's a character on The Sopranos who's <laughs> uh, in one of the early seasons who's constantly having back pain. Mm-hmm. And it turns out this character is harboring a secret betrayal. And the psychiatrist character in the show, she says, you know, well, a secret is a heavy load. It it might cause feelings like that. Now, of course, that's fiction, but I, I can see things like that happening in real life. Yeah, yeah. But of course, that's just our intuition. How about if we test it? Well, some people have been testing this, and the the answers are complicated. This is another one, I'm sorry to say, where the answers are not clear. Uh, the, there's going to be some back and forth and complications, so you got to stick with us for a minute. So there's an original study from 2012 in the Journal of Experimental Psychology by uh, Michael Slapian et al. called The Physical Burdens of Secrecy, in which the researchers found that people who kept big secrets, such as marital infidelity or sexual orientation, made different judgments of physical quantities having to do with work. 
So, for example, test subjects who were made to think about a secret that they kept, either a big secret or a small secret, they were then asked to look at some pictures. So the ones who had been thinking about a big secret judged a pictured hill to be steeper. Just looking at the photo of a head-on hill slope, people who uh, had been thinking about a, quote, big secret thought that the incline was about 46 degrees as opposed to people who thought about a small secret who thought that it was about 33 degrees. They also apparently judged distances to be farther. Now, this was tested by having subjects toss beanbags toward a target. Those who thought about a big secret threw their beanbags farther, uh, which the researchers interpreted to mean that they judged the distance to the target to be greater. Also, uh, in a separate test among subjects who had cheated on their partner, they found that the subjects who reported more psychological burden from their infidelity, meaning those who thought about it more, judged tasks like carrying groceries and helping someone move to require more effort. Hmm. And then a final study found that uh, a test group who had to conceal their sexual orientation was less likely to help with physical work like moving stacks of books than a control group who had to conceal an uncontroversial personality fact like your level of extroversion. Uh, so other studies have shown that uh, people carrying a heavy load judge hills to be steeper and distances to be farther. And that you can kind of see why that would be, right? The implication here is that the mind is interpreting uh, the secret as it would a literal burden. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you could also take it apart and say that it, it's almost as if the, the individual knows that it's going to, in, in, not only are they going to have to climb that hill, but they're going to have to climb the hill while thinking about this secret, like rolling yeah. this secret around in their head. Yeah, and sorry, if that point isn't clear, like, so you, uh, one thing that's been shown in research is you put a heavy backpack on somebody. Mm -hmm. Once they've got that heavy backpack on, they think a hill looks steeper than the same person without a backpack. Or they think a distant target looks farther away than without that backpack on. And and that that's physically, I mean, you can see why that would be. You're factoring in right. the expense of doing it with this extra weight. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, does this psychological weight play a similar role in the mind? Now, none of these studies actually say you get a better workout with a heavy seat because otherwise no. <laughs> that's what you need in a personal trainer to be like all right you're going to really get out there you're going to kill it today and speaking of killing uh i once killed uh, a doberman pincher now go out go go, go get it go 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 kill it uh none of the research is saying that i said no in fact you'd imagine it's probably the opposite right like you're you're not getting the physical benefits of of having a, you know a weight belt on in your workout but you're mm -hmm. having the mental uh difficulty of getting through your workout bearing this this load right yeah yeah now i want to i want to stress as i said going in that there are some complications to this and so we shouldn't just take these results at face value but before we get to the complications i want to talk about uh one more follow-up study by slapy and massacampo and embody called relieving the burdens of secrecy revealing secrets influences judgments of hill slant and distance and so this was a follow-up study and the authors found that making test subjects think about a secret caused them to see distances as longer and hills as steeper yet again, but that anonymously revealing details of a secret seemed to mostly eliminate this effect. 
And as in the first study, uh, estimates were altered for perceptions of physical space relating to body exertion, but not to numerical estimates generally. So you could have people estimate other kinds of things Mm -hmm. that aren't related to how your body would need to do some work. And it doesn't seem to affect that. So it wouldn't make you bad at math. Right. It's not just not just that having a secret makes you generally estimate higher numbers. Right. It's that it specifically would make things that you might have to like distances or slopes you'd have to traverse look more difficult. Okay, so that's the follow up study. It seems like that they find that uh, in addition to their original findings, if you if you reveal your secret, you might get some relief. But. It's good to check for follow-up research because in this case, other studies attempted to replicate Slapien's original research from 2012 and failed to get the same results. Hmm. Um, so I want to cite this one uh, by uh, Percher et al. The burden of secrecy, no effect on Hillsland estimation and beanbag throwing. And this is in the <laughs> Journal of Experimental Psychology. There's some beanbag throwing in that uh, in that uh, that article title, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's a little. It might be a little bit salty, but they're also very polite, and okay. they thank Slapien for. Uh, they say he cooperated with them in trying to help them replicate the experiments exactly. So yeah, they they replicated the experimental procedure as closely as they could with the help of Michael Slapien, and they failed to replicate the findings of the original study, calling those results into question. Uh, also, it's worth noting that these researchers had larger samples sizes in their replication study, giving their results greater statistical weight. Uh, They also performed a meta-analysis combining with other existing attempts to replicate the original results, some of which claimed to find the the same results. But they found that when results were combined across the existing studies, the correlation between having a big secret and the judgment of a steep-looking hill was not significant. However, there may be some nuance here. So n- now everything's up in the air, right? You have this original study mm-hmm. it claims to find this effect. People look for it with even larger sample sizes and don't find anything at all. Uh, and so what's going on? Is, is, are, are we just in bogus land here? Well, Slapien did try to introduce some nuance with another study, and, and this might get at what the problem was. So what he claims is uh, in a study from 2015 that maybe it's that the, the problem was dealing with this supposed size of the secret, right? They were dealing with these concepts of a big secret versus a small secret. Uh-huh. And maybe it's not actually that the size of the secret has any effect on how you judge the steepness of the hill, but that a person's level of preoccupation with the secret does more reliably predict how steep the hill seems. In other words, it's not really what the secret is. It's how much the secret, large or small, is eating away at you and keeps intruding on your mind. Okay, so here's a possible example. Um, What if I told you, do not tell Christian that I bought a new box of pins? Pins? Yeah, new box of pins, ink pins. Oh, ink pins. Yeah, don't Uh, tell him. I was imagining like pins, like in a pin cushion. I was like, what are you going to do with them? No, no, ink pins. Stick them into the Christian doll? Well, see, that's the thing. You wouldn't know. (laughs) So you might find yourself running this through your head. Why does he want me to keep the secret of the ink pins? It's just Uh a new box of ink pins. What What could possibly be going on? So even though there's no actual weight to it, you might return to it again and again, just trying to figure out why it's a secret. Mm hmm. So that, that's, that's my one possible take on that. <laughs> because otherwise, if it's not an important secret, why would you come back to it? Unless there's something tantalizing about it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or you're really proud of it. That could be another example. So like the boss, 
that you're you know really hoping to be in the ends with. They they share some just you know dumb work secret, but then you keep thinking, oh man. They they shared the secret with me. This is I'm on the inside now. I'm 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 in the upper echelon. This is it's I'm on my way up. Well, that that's another thing is that uh, the, the secrets in these studies are almost always just assumed to be negative. I mean, mm-hmm. in those few cases, and I think that's been our discussion so far is that most secrets do have negative connotations. But in those cases where you're keeping some positive secret, mm-hmm. would that have the same kind of effect? Maybe. I mean, would that also make you feel weighed down? Like here, like your secret is you were a part of the surprise committee. You're a part of this, the uh, surprise birthday party committee. Like that's, it's just full of fun. It's going to shower secrets. Christian with pens. Yeah. Yeah. He loves pens. And these, I didn't mention that these were all, uh, you know, that each one's themed after his favorite, uh, you know, comic book character. So he's going to oh, love them. Okay. Yeah. Is there like a pin man? That's <laughs> uh, the brand pin man pens. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, one more thing about that 2015 study. They also said that the effect seemed to be uh, mediated by the, quote, judged effort to keep a secret. So people subjectively report how much difficulty they're having keeping a secret, how much it takes. Uh, and so that may be a literal adaptation for resource conservation because you're saying it's uh, it's taking effort. Yeah. OK, so where are we now? I mean, the. the this is frustrating because, as is often the case, I'm sure you've experienced before, Robert, when you get into research, especially in social psychology, yeah. that there are these these results that are just messy and all over the place. And I feel like methodologies are not always unified. You always feel like, oh, I wish people were asking the same question instead of related questions. Yeah, well, it just it comes back again to just the changing nature of the secret. And you cannot just put a secret in a Petri dish and... And it, and use it in your experiment. Yeah. And we see that demonstrated time and time again with these results. And that actually is one of the things that feeds into the last paper I want to talk about, which is uh, more work from Michael Slapian with Jin Seok Chun and Malia Mason in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. I think this is just coming out uh, called The Experience of Secrecy. And so this isn't following specifically on the burdensomeness of secrecy, whether there's anything to that or not. We can leave that up in the air for now. Yeah, this this is more this team trying to say, okay, what is secrecy really? We need a new redefined theory of what secrecy is if we're going to study it. And so they start by saying, you know, attempts to describe secrecy are hampered by some problems. Why hasn't there been all that much research on secrecy? Well, one of the things is it's hard to study. By definition, secrets are things that people try to hide. Mm-hmm. So if you want to go with real secrets that people hold that are about their lives, it's difficult to reliably coax those secrets out in an experimental framework and manipulate them. You, you always wonder, like, are people really being honest uh, and are, are people and, and different secrets are going to have different weight to people. Right. Like it's yeah. hard to manipulate the secret variable. Yeah, it's hard. You probably are not having a lot of bring your own secret uh, experiments here. You know, you're going to provide some. It's going to basically come back to that kindergarten scenario where there's a puppet with a book of secrets and this is a stand for secrets. Yes, that's what a lot of the research does is provides you a secret. But when you're provided with a secret in a research environment, the secret's trivial. I mean, it just doesn't really mean anything to you. So you're probably not going to treat it like you would a secret that's relevant to your personal life. And if it's relevant to your personal life, You might ask people, do you have a secret, you know, for the purpose of an experiment? Think about that secret. Now do X, Y, and Z. One person might be thinking about, I cheated on my spouse. And the other person might be thinking about, 
I secretly want to write a comic book or something. You know right. what I mean? They're just not really equivalent. Yeah, and if you were somehow able to draw in someone's actual secrets into the experiment, it ceases to be a scientific experiment. It becomes like a, a like a jigsaw killer scenario, right? <laughs> like that could basically be an entire horror movie right there. Someone experimenting on people and using their real dark secrets to their advantage. Right. So so there's all this difficulty in this research area. Mm-hmm. Secrets are incredibly important uh, psychological phenomenon. I think it totally matters to study them, but they're just hard to study rigorously. And another thing the authors point out is they think prior research has defined secrecy too narrowly. Uh, so they, they, they make this point, and I think this gets into something we've actually been talking about throughout the episode now. They say, you know, previous research is focused almost entirely on secrecy as deliberate interpersonal concealment, mm-hmm. preventing other people from finding out something, either omitting information or actively deceiving in order to hide a piece of knowledge from another person or persons. And the authors here propose a model of secrecy that is instead intrapersonal, while the ultimate goal of secrecy is to prevent other people from knowing something. The primary experience of secrecy, what it's like to have a secret, is mostly intrapersonal. It's inside. Uh, It's, uh, again, uh, a la Lane and Wegner, I think we mentioned this earlier, a s- secrecy is something you can do alone in a room. Yeah, it's just you rolling the secret back and forth in your head, uh, you know, c- contemplating the contents of the secret, but also, you know, what are they going to be the effects if you share the secret with someone else, either intentionally or unintentionally? Right. Or thinking about uh, the, the the contents of the secret itself, not even just like the disclosure scenario. Right. Yeah. Like you might be obsessing over whatever it is that's bringing you trouble, mm-hmm. how people would react. I mean, yeah, there's so much to roll through in your brain. And so the authors here try to redefine secrecy, not as the act of concealment from others, but as the state of mind, the intention to conceal information from others. So, and another thing they point out is that not every act of inhibition in conversation is secrecy. I think this is a very good point, actually. There are hundreds of ways that you practice inhibition and keep yourself from saying certain kinds of things during interaction with others, but most of these don't have to do with keeping specific personal information a secret, right? Most of them have to do with something like manners or appropriateness. Mm-hmm. You're not trying to prevent people from finding something out. You're just trying not to say something that would be not appropriate to say. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And to come back to what we we're talking earlier about four or five and six year olds, like you see all of that coming online as well. Yeah. The, the gradual realization that that not everything is is appropriate, uh, uh, you know, content for discussion. You know, you can't share every detail of your your latest bathroom break. Right. Uh, just because it happened and you're that kind of like free sharing soul. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so if it's possible that there's a personal fact about you that you wouldn't want other people to know, and yet it never comes up in conversation and nobody ever asks you about it, if that's the case, is it a secret? Well, I'd still say yes, even if there's never any occasion where you have to act to conceal it. Hmm. It's just because you don't want people to know that it is a secret. I would agree with that, yes. So, yeah, in that case, it seems like secrecy is defined primarily by the intent of the concealer, not by the behavior of the concealer. I mean, for instance, uh, your email password or your bank account information is essentially a secret. Right. 
But I, I don't think it necessarily, I mean, it might bring a certain amount of physical or mental anguish to remember those passwords. Uh-huh. But for the most part, you're not sitting around like anguishing over this secret keeping that's taking place regarding your Gmail password. That's a good point. I mean, if secrets do, if they are some kind of burden or if they do have some kind of effect on us, why does it seem to be that these these studies are only focused on the sort of negative affect of facts about ourselves as opposed to just like secret information that is kept confidential for totally utilitarian reasons? Yeah, it's like most of the secrets tend to be story shaped secrets as opposed to just coded secrets or just informational secrets, right? That's a really good point. I mean, I wonder what the difference is psychologically. Hmm. How does your body react differently to them, if at all? Um, so yeah, but we spend a lot of time alone with our secrets and they can surface whenever the mind wanders. And of course, uh, we probably all know from experience that they often do, right? You've, I'm sure you've had this experience, Robert. You're alone. You're sitting in traffic or something like that. And if you have any secrets, they tend to just pop into your head uninvited. And this can happen a whole lot. I want to, uh, cite just one study by, uh, Kane et al. from 2007 in psychological science where they were attempting to judge how often people's minds wandered off of whatever they were doing in daily life. And they used this digital assistant to prompt people throughout the day to see what was on their mind. And they found that people reported their minds were wandering almost about a third of the time, about 30% of the time. Uh, so most of the time they reported that their minds were wandering to mundane day-to-day thoughts, but uh, the contents of mind wandering vary from person to person. Sometimes they were wandering to plans. Sometimes they were wandering, wandering to worries. Yeah. And secrets are among these worries. So every time your mind wanders to a secret, you get to be reminded of your own lack of honesty, your own lack of authenticity, uh, which can be very undermining to your sense of self-worth, right? Yeah, and also an incomplete task. Remember that as well. Exactly right. So back to this paper, based on the hypothesis of secrecy being primarily intrapersonal, you know, inside you instead of uh, between you and other people, they make two predictions. Uh, they say, quote, first, people catch themselves mind wandering to secrets outside of relevant concealment settings more frequently than they encounter social situations that necessitate active concealment of secrets. So they're saying uh, based on their new model, we should expect to find that people think about their secrets way more than they actually have occasion to prevent people from finding out about them. Right. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing is, quote, the frequency with which people mind wander to their secrets predicts lower well-being independent of the frequency with which they actively conceal their secrets. So here they're predicting the more your mind just intrusively features secrets content the more secrets just pop into your head, the lower your well-being is going to be. Um, so the, the, this uh, paper had 10 studies throughout it, too many details to go into here, uh, just a few highlights. And they came up with uh, 38 categories of secrets after a little pilot study. And they would ask, you know, have you done this? Is it a secret? The categories of secrets would be things like uh, emotional infidelity, sexual infidelity, theft, uh, uh, work cheating, things like that. Uh, and across the multiple samples, consistently more than 95% of people admitted to having at least one secret. So it seems like when you really drill down and give people categories to choose from, most people are keeping at least one secret. Lots of people are keeping multiple secrets. The most common types of secrets people had that they reported never having shared with anyone 
were sexual behavior, lies, romantic desires, and extra relational thoughts. Hmm. Okay. No big surprises yeah, there, right? Makes sense. Yeah. Um, so uh, people did generally mind wander to secrets. They found much more than they actively concealed them in interactions. And this was true for all kinds of secrets except for one, which was surprises. Huh. Which is kind of sweet. People spend more time actively concealing surprises than, than letting their mind wander to them. Well, that's, yeah. Well, that, that makes sense too. Cause again, those are like, those are the positives. Those are the bright spots in the secret keeping universe. Right. So according to self reports, the more people mind wandered to their secrets, the more they claimed their secret harmed their well being. And this was true for mind wandering, but not for active concealment. So the general findings here were that having a secret leads to active concealment and mind-wandering of the subject to the secret, but mind-wandering to the secret happens much more often, and mind-wandering to the secret appears to have a a negative effect on well-being. Now, I had a big question about this. Uh, I guess we're going to wrap up in a minute here, but I'm wondering, in these mind-wandering events, what's the phenomenology there? Because there you're just talking about the mind-wandering to a subject, when people's mind wanders to a secret, what are they generally thinking of? Are they thinking about the subject of their secret, like the thing it is that they're keeping secret? Or are they thinking about how the secret would be perceived if it were discovered? Or are they thinking about how to keep it from being discovered? Like, what is the primary feeling of your mind wandering to a secret? I mean, I imagine a lot of it's tied up in you know the, the nature of the, the default mode network, and that we're, we're sort of continually worrying about the past and the future. Mm -hmm. So it's going to basically color like, what does this say about who I am in the past or the future, the keeping of this secret or the, the nature of the secret, right? That would be my read on it. Yeah, I think that's a really good read. And the who I am is a big factor because the, the, so in the study I just talked about, the authors, they're presenting an authenticity model of secrecy. Uh, that is interesting to me because it's basing the whatever potential harmful effects of secrecy there are, they say are, are maybe largely rooted in not necessarily like us spending cognitive resources thinking about the secret, but in the secret undermining our sense of authenticity and self-worth. Like it hurts our self-esteem to think about the fact that we have to keep things secret. So in the study, like I said, they define secrecy not as the act of concealing information from others, but the desire to conceal information from others. And I wonder if you could take that a step farther. Insofar as that information relates to facts about yourself, could you go even more basic and say that secrecy is an intentional mismatch between your public and private self? Huh. Yeah. I think you could, you know, and that... That actually, that actually plays in within the, the final example I want to bring up for our podcast episode here. Oh yeah? Well, what is that? That's that you, you're talking about public and private self. What is more public and private self than the clothed self and the naked self? The clothed, the version of you that is literally wearing clothes and the version of you that is literally naked. Well, I guess if you're never nude, even the private self isn't always clothed. Well, that's, that's true. The never nudes of Arrested Development that they, they put an additional spin on this. I'm not sure that Giorgio uh, Agamben actually thought about this, but who is this? Okay. He is, uh, he is an Italian philosopher, uh, of the 20, 20th and 21st century. He was born in 1942, so he's still with us. Mm-hmm. And he's written a good bit on uh, this idea of nudity as a secret. 
So he, uh, it, it, it's really, really fascinating stuff. He gets into it at, you know, far greater philosophic depth than we have time to discuss here. But for instance, he points to the myth of uh, Adam and Eve as the birth of shame and the beginning of ethics. Uh, he says, quote, if nudity results in us being ashamed, it is because we cannot hide that which we would prefer to hide from the glance of the eye, because the unrestrainable impulse of escaping from oneself is encountered by an equal certain impossibility of evasion. Now, hmm. can you translate that for me? <laughs> OK, again, he goes he goes pretty deep into it. He talks about nudity and clothing as metaphors for the original state of humanity and divine grace. But it, his basic argument for nudity here or, or denudation is that, uh, quote, forms of human engagement can become substantively democratic if enacted through an unconcealed disclosedness. So, <laughs> OK, he's saying that, you know, nudity is about like it's, it's like basically boils down to, you know, letting the absence of secrets be seen. So, like, nudity is the ultimate honesty. Yeah, in a, in a sense, it is. If you're trying to get to ultimate disclosure, ult- ultimate honesty, ultimate uh, equality of information, you should not only tell all your secrets and never tell lies, but you should take your clothes off. Well, it's what we do with the Voyager plates, right? We sent off images of naked human beings to say, and, and that was, of course, controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we were saying this is what human beings are, these naked uh, ape creatures. But, of course, that's a little dishonest because you look around you, you know, and maybe you're at a nudist colony listening to this, but uh, or you're in a, you know, a traditional sauna, but... By and large, this probably is not the case. People are probably wearing clothes around you. And uh, that's kind of uh, Agamben's argument here. He says, humanity for humanity, nudity has become, quote, an event, not a state. Mm. In the same way, you could basically say that, like, secrets have become the state. You know, we could we possibly like, spin this off and say that the keeping and trade of secrets has become the state of humanity. And the and so, so these secrets are the, the skins that we don as we march eternally out of the, the Garden of Eden. Wow. Well, I would not have predicted that we were going to end up with nudity, Robert. But I, th- <laughs> I think that's actually highly relevant. Yeah, the, the, it's um, I mean, clothing is sort of the it's the embodiment of one of the more benign secrets. Right. Because right. you when you when you wear clothes, you're not really betraying anyone. Right. You're not like covering up something horrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Maybe some of us are. But <laughs> you're, you're not covering up a crime or something like that. Right. Something that people should know about. Uh, but I can see what he's saying that the enclosed state is naturally an inauthentic state, I guess. Yeah. And it has become the norm. So yeah. that that actual like physical honesty and openness has become an event. It has become like, these rare occurrences in the timeline of human existence. So, what are people more likely to give up? Their secrets or their clothing? Ooh, that's a great question. That's kind of, kind of comes down to like a you know a jigsaw kind of scenario. You give up your clothing <laughs> or your secrets? Are you gonna you're gonna walk down the street? Uh, n- n- there's a whole other thing too. He he goes crazy on the emperor's new clothing and, and all oh. the connotations there. But yeah, would you get, do you give up your your clothing or your secret? I don't know. I would imagine uh, if the secret is weighty enough, you'd probably give up the clothing. Man, Robert, this has been an interesting discussion, but I'm frustrated by the science in this one. This is yeah. one where, I mean, this has happened before, especially when we get into social psychology. I feel like it happens all the time that there, the, the literature is replete with studies that I'm kind of skeptical of the reported results and mm-hmm. then studies that fail to replicate and then studies that get conflicting results or that 
aren't exactly asking the same question, but being applied to each other. Uh, I don't know. It's one of those where what's there seems interesting, but I don't know what's true or what to make of it. Well, welcome. Welcome to the modern age. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's our enclosed age. But, uh, you know, the great thing about this topic is that everybody is going to have some insight for this. People are going to have thoughts on uh, you, your children and their ability to keep secrets or not keep secrets. The weight of secrets as an adult, um, the nudity scenario. I would love to hear from any nudist out there or individuals who've, you know, participated in nudist events and how how that makes them feel in terms of, uh, you know, uh, you know, personal psychic burdens that we've been talking about here today. Yeah, seriously, you have got me wondering about this now. So like for someone with a, with a nudist orientation, might you might you actually come to see uh, shedding your clothing with the same kind of relief that a person might feel admitting a secret that they've kept for a long time? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would imagine so. All right. Well, hey, let us know. You can get in touch with us all the usual ways. First of all, go to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, as well as links out to various social media accounts, including Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, etc. cetera. Uh, certainly interact with us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group there, the uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, and you can pop in there with uh, you know some more detailed, longer-form thoughts about everything. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Thank you.